Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi, I'm Richard Burns. I'm a Manchester City supporter. You can find me on Twitter at Richard the Burns. I write two articles a week for Yahoo Sport UK on Manchester City, and I am on the Blue Moon podcast, which is released every Friday and is a dedicated Manchester City podcast. Hi, I'm Jake. I represent Newcastle on the podcast. You can get me on Twitter at Jake Jackman with two N's, and I write for various websites, including EPL Index and The Boot Room. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Uh, up first, I want to talk to you about a potentially big move uh, for Tottenham this week. Seems they are on the verge of signing Serge Aurier, who is one of the more talented right backs in the world, honestly. Uh, but there is a lot of strings attached with this deal. One of the reasons he's only looking to cost somewhere between 23 and 25 million pounds is because he has a history uh, that is not clean, to say the least. Um, there were comments he made about Laurent Blanc that have been uh, termed as homophobic. Um, and he's also had a run-in with the police, uh, wherein he was uh, alleged to have assaulted a police officer. And that court case is still ongoing. And that's what we're waiting on to see if he can... Uh, be released from that and able to even come to England as some people will remember he wasn't able, even able to travel to England uh, in the Champions League last year uh, because of this outstanding issue my my question for you guys is how would you feel if your club was uh, clearly after and likely about to sign a player with this kind of past and do you think that clubs or the sport as a whole should have some kind of blanket morality and does it have like a responsibility like that in society or is it a separate entity where sport is just sport and it's hard to translate from kind of the real world to athletics it's a the the way you've put the question is i think makes it really interesting the like the bit that jumps out at me straight away um is the it's a budget is the sport and and the clubs individually have a responsibility or like a moral obligation um like to to be decent and to I suppose to to hire decent people and to be a, a positive influence in their community um, and the I guess the the country as a whole and I, I guess for Premier League clubs they, they're shown around a moral obligation to be uh, I guess a, a beef moral goodness in the world uh, I think to a point they do um, because. They are football clubs should be a, a pillar in their local community for a start. These clubs do all sorts of things with charities, um, and they have such a, a sort of wide influence that I think they do have a responsibility to um, to be morally good. Um, and so that I guess comes down to the people that they hire and the message that they send when they when they recruit certain players or managers, how they behave when scandals happen with players and employees that are currently at the club, all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I think there is a, a responsibility of clubs to be, just to, to try and be decent in that regard and to send out the right message. Um, to go back to the, uh, to take it to the, the first part of the question that you asked of how would I feel, uh, obviously in my case, if City were signing somebody with, uh, with Aurier's past, um, on the basis that I think football clubs should be should try to, where possible, be morally decent. Um, it's not something I'd be wholly comfortable with um, because he doesn't have a particularly decent past. The, the allegations about the language that he used to describe uh, Laurent Blanc and that, as you said, was termed as homophobic, um, I don't know the all-around story, so I can, you know, I don't know his defence of it. I, I only know that he admitted that what he said was out of order, that um, obviously it was 
a big story and what he said was was wrong. Um, I think if if City were to be after a club like that, what I, a player like that, sorry, what I would find important was if they were to sign him, is that it didn't go unacknowledged, that this wasn't just something like we signed him and then as a sort of no PR or no communication. Like I, I would want it acknowledged that, yes, I've done this thing in the past, or for the club to say, like, we know that he has these allegations against him, but we've we've spoken to him. We believe that he's shown appropriate levels of contrition. We believe that he slipped up as a as a young man. He said something that he shouldn't have done and, and was caught out. And he understands why that was a bad thing to say. So I think if we expect people to be perfect and never to have made mistakes, and if any of us can say that we've never said something that we that we regret or. Uh, if we could go back that we wouldn't change, then that's probably a lie. And so you can't hold footballers or celebrities to perfect standards. But I, I'm not comfortable with the, the language that he used. And I would want there to be some bigger show of contrition than I think is shown so far. Um, quite what that would be would be open to debate. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a moral minefield, really, isn't it? Because there's so much to it that... But I do think a football club has a responsibility to, to be decent and that, that should be reflected in the players that they sign because football clubs are supported by all parts of the community. And if, if signing a particular player were to upset or make a any area, um, whether it be a minority um, of any kind, any area of their fan base uncomfortable, that's something that the, that the club, I think, would have to address. Yeah, I, I completely agree with, with everything uh, that was just said then. Uh, the thing with Aurier in particular is Tottenham are a club that, from the outside looking in, have quite a together dressing room. It seems like they're all quite good friends. Like the handshake stuff was made it like a bit of a joke of, but it sort of showed that everyone was sort of together and pulling in the right direction. I guess that's why Walker was sold because he, he wasn't completely buying into what was going on. I can't imagine Ori, a, a character like Aurier, w- would really fit into that or really bring anything positive to that dressing room. It, it's such a gamble that his football ability will sort of override anything else that would make me worry as a Spurs fan. But like on the, on the actual, like signing a character like that. Yeah. It wouldn't really sit well with me. I'm not, I, it's, of course, football is such a, a game that if, if he came in and did really well, you'd sort of overlook it as a fan. You sort of get those rose tinted glasses. I'm a little bit like it with John Joe Shelby sometimes when he's not an idiot and when he plays really well, I do like having him, but also he is a bit of a, He's not like the greatest egg he really. He got done for like sort of like racism last year, although he did he continues to deny that. It's, it's sort of, you know, it's not great to have somebody in your team that would be, even be accused of that, let alone maybe even have, have done it maliciously. So it's 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 difficult, isn't it? And I, I think maybe the, the you're going to come in with in a minute, Kev, you're slightly going to go different because of American sports and sort of what goes on in the NFL and what some of the players do over there. And maybe it's a very cultural thing in England that we would maybe not like somebody like Aurier in our team that's that's like my take on it yeah I, I'm glad you brought that up you you and I had talked about this uh previously this week um the, I I have a lot of conflicting opinions on this um and that is uh like within myself I'm not saying with uh anyone else first of all yes as an American sports fan there are many players in the NFL that have done far worse than words um, and having to deal with that is uh, difficult because when you're when you're confronted by somebody that is not a fan of the sport, there's really no defense there. At a certain point in the NFL and in sports, I feel on the whole, there is a break point between ability and forgivability. Where if you're good enough, if if your natural talent level is high enough, it is a lot easier for people to get past what you've done and then people start bringing out the well everybody should get a second chance but if you aren't that good and you do something like that then you don't get a second chance which is why i'm saying it's it's ability based um on the specific uh usage of of the word he used first of all i do not speak french um i i have seen that it is a p word and i've seen that it's an f word and not the sexual one the uh, slur the homophobic slur one um i i and before i get into this first of all i realize this is dangerous water for us to go in as a show but i think it's important to discuss 
Uh, and secondly, I do have some rose-tinted glasses already, as Jake mentioned, because he's coming to my club, so I'm already having to try to deal with the incoming of a player like this. So with all, all of those out of the way, um, I, I don't know. I, I, for me, it's, it is a very tough situation. I completely agree that this is not the kind of character that you would think Tottenham would be after. Um, there is a Tottenham website that wrote a piece that said the signing of Serge Aurier is an insult to every uh, LGBT fan of the club. I cannot speak to that. I'm, I'm not in that community personally. Um, I realize that I am not as knowledgeable about the situation as I would like to be, but I think it's a very important uh, conversation to have. Um, on the police thing, you cannot assault police officers. Uh, obviously, that's why there's a court case going on. Uh, I did see on one site that um, there is an issue right now with uh, police violence in France, just as there is here in the States. I'm sure many people have heard about it here. Um, and Ori claims that he was assaulted first by the police officer. There is, according to an unnamed source that I could not verify anywhere, that that was confirmed by an, uh, a secondary witness. I do not know that for a fact. But... Regardless of all of this, this conversation is why you don't want a player like that. Because you have to have these conversations. Because you have to deal with the ramifications of, does, will every fan know exactly what happened? Or will people just split into two camps of, it's fine and it doesn't matter, it's just sports, and split into a group of people who, like uh, the website I was talking about earlier, said a whole group of fans will now feel alienated by the club by bringing somebody in that uses that kind of language. Um, all in all, it's, it, is, it is a tough one. If, if you look at this morally, and if you think that sports teams should have a moral obligation to prevent this kind of uh, thing from reaching a large scale, then it is a bad signing. If you look at it just in football, it is a fantastic signing. It's exactly what Tottenham need, but... Again, it's, it's, it's a very tough situation on how you feel about bringing this player in. Because when this player is already at your club, like you've had the John Terry situation, you've had Luis Suarez, you've had Andre Gray. Um, when they're already at your club, I think it's easier to get over because they're already there. You've already cheered for them in the past. You're, you're already um, invested in them. And so when they do something like that, it feels like betrayal, but there's an easier path back in because you've seen what they've done in the past. And so uh, as a fan of that club, it can be easier to forgive. It's harder to do when you're trying to bring that person in for both a fan base and for a club, because then you have to explain why you're doing it as opposed to explaining why you're not getting rid of somebody. It, it turns, it becomes an action instead of an inaction. Anyway, this is getting quite, quite deep for me personally. He is likely coming, and this is going to be a conversation that is not over because we talked about it for 10 minutes on a podcast. Um, but again, I think it's a very important conversation to have. And if, if there's no other positive that comes from this, if, if Tottenham sign him and they do not do some formal thing, like immediately have him meet with, uh, the, there's an LGBT Spurs supporters group. If they don't have him meet with them or, or clearly do anything uh, remorseful, uh, the only positive I can take from it is that it will continue, if not raise more profile on issues like these. And and hopefully, over time, that will be something that leads to positive change. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. All right. 
now from that, we're going to get back into actual football, which is probably why most of you are listening to this in the first place. But um, what do you make of this current tactical trend of so many people playing with back threes in the Premier League? Because a lot of clubs that are doing it currently don't really have the personnel to do it and are being exposed by it. Um, how long do you think we're going to see this in the Premier League of everybody trying it? And what do you think is the best counter to it? The thing for how long will we see it is there's a really uh, there's a really annoying trend, I suppose you'd call it, or a really annoying thing that football clubs do and football managers do, where when something becomes popular or when it works for one club, other clubs try and just replicate it. And that's where the problem of not having the right personnel comes because people latch onto, onto this idea that, okay, this is working. So um, take when Barcelona were, were dominating um, world, well, European and world football uh, under Guardiola. Suddenly, everybody wanted to play tiki-taka football from, from Premier League managers to championship managers. I said, well, there needs to be a realism to understand that your players probably can't do this and your skill as a manager has actually got to be to find the right system for your players. Um, and the five, the, the, the three at the back thing is probably just a, a similar thing. It's, it's in vogue. Everybody wants to have a go at it. It will work for some clubs. So I happen to think it's a, a good thing for City to be trying because we've seen Guardiola go out and very specifically recruit the players for the system. So our fullbacks are now set up for that system. We sort of have centre-backs that are set up for it um, and will continue to to get there with that. So it makes sense for us. There is, to sort of extend the point wider, there is, there is never a point in a football club adopting a tactic just because it's in vogue. Um, I find that sort of infuriating. It does absolutely nothing to advance football, which is basically what every tactical shift should be. Teams get good, other teams work out how to counter it. And so then you have to think of something else. And it's, it's no good just it being copied. Um, in terms of how you counter the, the three at the back and obviously attacking wing-backs, um, you need... I mean, this is where I possibly get out of my depth because I'm, I'm by no means any tactical expert at all. But we saw Everton last week do a, a pretty good job um, of stopping us, I think, of stopping City last Monday. Uh, Brighton, for a while, held off against us just by packing the defence. Everton did it with um, a bit more flair. I suppose they showed more attacking intent. But you need, I think you need a very... You, you need to be good on the ball because once you lose the ball, you are so open to counter, it's ridiculous. So you need to have players in your team who can keep the ball and keep possession because um, Brighton, although they defended well, they could never ever have attacked us. Because every time they did, they just get every sorry every time uh, they won the ball, they gave it straight back and then just blocked the defence again. Whereas Everton at least uh, looked like they might try and counter us, and they were very, I thought, technically very good in the middle. Um, and at, at times we, we struggled with that a little bit. Um, so I, I don't know what the exact perfect block is to it and, and the exact counter, but speaking from how I've seen teams deal with City already this season, uh, you you re really, really need to be good at holding on to the football, which sounds obvious. But you can, I think if you come up against a team who's halfway good at it, halfway good at three at the back and attacking with wing-backs, um, if you're not good at keeping the ball, then you're in trouble. I don't think it's the kind of tactic that you can just match by replicating it and um, sort of copying it and, and fighting fire with fire. Yeah, the free at the back thing is a bit weird that it's actually come on as, as a trend based basically on Chelsea, wasn't it? Like, I guess they're the, the, the main team that, that brought it into focus. But, you know, they've got the perfect personnel to do it. Conte built or he brought in players last summer so he could switch to that when he wanted to, like Marcus Alonso. Um, came in, you know, you had N'Golo Kante, and in a, in a three-man defence, you need two midfielders that can carry the work of a three, and I think that is what the problem has been for some other teams trying to do it. Um, a, a good example is Arsenal. I mean, I mean last se season, it, they got some results from it, but none. they never looked convincing, even when they had their full-strength team, because they didn't have the right players for it. Their central midfield is probably one... It's 
it's a massive problem area. And the fact they haven't sorted it out this summer is ridiculous. They they can't play with a two-man midfield. Aaron Ramsey and Granite Chaka, they, they don't. Like if you look at Kante and Matic from last season, you you know, Kante would cover the ground. Matic would. And, and Matic did a lot more than people give him credit for. He's, he's a very, he's very good United on the ball. Year. Yeah, he's very good on the ball. He can bring the ball forward. He's got a good passing range. He's not hes not a stereotypical defensive midfielder. I think shoehorning him into that sort of role is, is not completely right from the media. But yes, yeah, it's, it's just... I don't think people, other managers should do it. You saw Pochettino have some success, but that's because he has Dembele and Wanyama. You know, those two, they could dominate a, a central midfielder on their own. They don't need a third man in there. So then they can give up an extra man and and play him further forward. You, you know, you see uh, Ali, is it Ali, Son and Kane normally? Like that works as, yeah. as a trio. And then you've got the wing backs as well. And the wing backs are a massive part of it. And I think that is where some some managers have come into sort of fault trying to replicate. Like today, didn't Arsenal have Bellerin at left wing back? Like it's not going to mm-hmm. work. That's that's a massive problem. And even City, when uh, last week when I watched them against Everton, they weren't. They didn't really have the right personnel. To it. it seemed like they were playing the formation to get Aguero and Jesus on the pitch at the same time, as opposed to actually wanting to play the system. But even with any any sort of system, it's not that they're a bit of a like. It's never what it, it it comes out of uh, on the on you know in the pre-match they give out the formation. It's, uh, in a game, it's it's a lot more fluid. You don't really have three at the back. You have space, and Guardiola talks about that a lot. Doesn't he? You know, you work the space. You don't play specific positions. It's it's all space work. And and as as to countering it, I think last season the best example I would give from not a top top six team was Crystal Palace at Chelsea. They did it very well under mm. Allardyce. And Allardyce is a manager who's not going to get taken away by trends. He's not going to change the way he plays. He knows how to get results. He knows his limits. And it, he, he showed perfectly how to counteract Conte's 3-4-2-1, uh, is it? Yeah, he, he showed perfectly how to counter that last season. He, he just he, he packed, the, packed the middle of the park, packed, packed the defence, give them no space. And as soon as they were on the ball back, play long to the wings to Wilfred Zaha and Townsend. You know, you've got those two quick wingers and there'll be gaps left behind from the wing backs. You pull the defence, you pull the two central defenders out and then, you know, you've isolated. You've sort of got a three on three there and it's, that is the perfect way to play it. But it's, it's very difficult. You need to have good, you know, the right players to even counteract it and you need it to be your day as well. Like Conte, and another thing with Conte three five two, they've just got better players. <laughs> like better yeah. players could know what to do. They know where to be. They know what to do with the ball. Whereas if you're seeing with Palace this season, they they're playing three at the back at the moment, or at least they've tried it a few <laughs> times. They don't have the team to do it, and they are being utterly embarrassed week after week. And Frank De Boer, its reputation is just through the floor. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 an interesting tactical trend. I don't think it's going to continue. I mean, for years, they were saying that you couldn't play three at the back in the Premier League. That used to be a narrative that was pushed forward. I think AVB tried to bring three at the back and they said it wouldn't work and various other managers have tried it. it it's sort of... It's here now and it's. I don't think it's that much of a trend. I think there's only two teams that can do it effectively. Um, Chelsea and Tottenham. I, don't, I think they're the only team, two teams. Any other team that tries it, like it's a variation of it, but it's like a very bad mimic. Mm. Like, yeah, I, I don't think it's going to stay around for for too long. As long as Conte's in the Premier League, it will be here, but it's going to change again. And yeah. it, there, there are ways to counteract it. Like I said, Crystal Palace did it, and you can also like like um, Richard was talking about uh, Brighton, just pack pack the midfield, pack the defense, and just hope it goes well, and yeah, just, just hope let you them can budge up against you for ninety minutes. Exactly, yeah. Um, with, with a team like Chelsea and Tottenham, you, you, they've just got better players. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that's that's a lot to do with it. That's what we've seen this year for Tottenham. Is the majority of teams have done that to us already this season, including Chelsea when they played six defenders against us. Is they just set up? And <laughs> for those that watched the Burnley match today, I think Volks was in our half five times, maybe. Just stood on the line the whole th- the whole time. Um, but it's interesting you say that it's just Tottenham and Chelsea because I think Manchester City made the signings necessary to play it. But obviously the the difficulty is, and the reason why so few teams are capable of doing it, is you need three plus good center backs because if you lose one and you want to keep that formation, you have to be able to fill them. And you have to have two very athletic, attacking capable, but also defensively minded wingbacks. And getting five players like that 
plus, because you need cover for those positions, is incredibly difficult to do. Richard, what, what do you think about Pep adhering to this? And do you think you'll see it for most of the season? Do you, do you feel like we can trust Stones enough to play him with company Otamendi? Or do you think you might be adding there? Are you confident in that formation this year? Um, sort of. I'm, I trust Guardiola to get it right because I think the signings have been good. But it's not. It's far from right yet. We have. We still have problems in the games where we've we've played three at the back. Um, against Brighton, for example, uh, Danilo played on the left, and every single time, like part of the, we could see within, and, and no exaggeration, within 30 seconds, we'd already see him walk bombing up the right wing, and it was instantly clear what difference it made having uh, uh, somebody who can play right wing back with, yeah. in that formation, and the difference to that between having uh, Sanya or Zabaleta going up the wing, it instantly different. On the left, we had Danilo, who... He could do the same thing, but every time he uh, he got to the byline, he cut back and completely slowed the attack down because he had to get it onto his right foot. So we lost a lot of the, the benefit of that system. It was fine on the right, but we became too predictable because we had to do everything down the right because we were essentially ineffective down the left because Danilo couldn't put a first-time ball in with his left foot. Having Mendy there... Uh, for the Bournemouth game, again, the, the difference was phenomenal. 11 crosses he put in, and at least three of them created chances that we probably should have scored from. Um, so I, I do trust the system. Um, we're not, we are far from defensively perfect yet, but that is, I mean, that's been the case for, uh, for a long, long time. So it's not just going to happen. And then with regards to John Stones, I do trust him, but I think he really needs a period next to company. I mean, you'll probably recall me from last season. I, I go on the defensive about John Stones quite a lot because he is a very uh, Guardiola-type centre-back. He can play the ball out very well. He does have mistakes in him, but um, as I, I said a few times last season, a lot of his mistakes, I felt, certainly early on, were because the rest of the team weren't in tune with him and not the other way around. Uh, he really needs company's guidance next to him or somebody more experienced and reliable. Um, Otamendi isn't that. He's had a better start to the season. I think he looks quite a lot improved, Otamendi. Uh, I think this is where if we get Johnny Evans, uh, as uninspiring a signing as that might seem to a lot of people, it makes perfect sense to me. Company can't be relied upon for a full season of fitness. Um, he's going to get suspended at some point because he, he does pick up bookings. Uh, Johnny Evans to come in and just be a really calm and experienced head and, you know, he's a good defender just to help guide John Stones through games. I think that could be absolutely huge and a, a really, really savvy bit of business. And I would expect to see that uh, over the line by Thursday. Um, so, yeah, I, I do trust in the system itself. Uh, I, I think we will see it a lot. I think we've got the players for it, uh, but it won't be exclusively the system we play. Guardiola likes to work uh, a lot over the summer and early doors on new systems and then be able to have the players versed in several different systems so that when they change, it all comes naturally and there's no rustiness flitting between systems. Um, it, it's what he did so successfully at Bayern that he could play 23 different formations with them, which is just about the most different formations you can play with an 11-man football team. Um, so we're clearly a long way short of that level, but that's what he will build towards. So it won't be exclusively three at the back, but I think we'll see it a lot. The thing about City playing three at the back, just to bring it back to, to the three at the back chat, it's I don't think City will ever play the right team to make it as successful as it could be. Because in my mind, you need the two wing backs, which they have now. If you have Mendy and Walker, that, that's fine. You've got the three at the back, Stones, Otter, Mendy and company, that's fine. It's the midfield that brings problems for me. If you put Gundogan in there with Fernandinho, it would work very well. And I think they would absolutely destroy teams off the pitch but the problem with doing that is you can only play then three attacking players and which three would they be I just don't think Guardiola will ever sacrifice that many of his attackers to, to make it as successful as it could be they're going to have so much of the ball that they can they can make it work with whoever they have on the pitch if they have Gundogan with De Bruyne in the middle or Silva in the middle or you know they can make it work but I don't think that he's ever going to sacrifice that much attacking talent to make it as successful as Chelsea's was that's a fair point. Yeah, that's pretty interesting, actually. Um, 
Uh, I mean, I think Gundogan will be pretty pivotal this year once he's once he's uh, been brought back in. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we see that I might be wide of the really wide of the mark on this, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see Fernandinho play quite a few less games than he has done over the last few seasons. I, I think he might be. Uh, he's far from past it, but I think he might be on the downward slope now, um, and so he might. I think he won't be as important as he has been. Uh, but time will tell. I might be, I accept I might be really, really wide of the mark on that one, but it's just a, a sort of hunch I've got at the moment. Hmm. Uh, yeah, as as you mentioned, Jake Tottenham are playing uh, three at the back pretty consistently, although we did not today, largely due to Wanyama being out. And I think that ties back into your point that while um, <laughs> what I was saying about you have to have those five defenders, it is also very important who's in front of them. Um and while Dyer and Dembele can be that duo, we're much more comfortable with it being Wanyama. I, I've, I think I've always said that Dyer is the better of the two in a 4-2-3-1 because Wanyama doesn't offer enough in that formation. Um, but when he gets to just shield the whole back line, when we have three at the back, I think that's when we're uh, really at our best. The signing of Davinson Sanchez when we already had two of the five best center backs in the Premier League, in my opinion. Um, was so that we could shift to three at the back more frequently. We already have Dyer capable of sliding back there. Um, now we have Davinson Sanchez, who's obviously an, an incredible athlete, um, still young, still learning the trade a, of defending, which is probably the longest to learn. Um, but I think that was the point of that. I think we'll see it uh, as our primary uh, formation, especially if we do get, <laughs> despite all the issues mentioned earlier, Serge Aurier. Um, I think we've learned in the last two weeks that either Trippier is hurt, um, which obviously he returned much quicker than we were expecting from a preseason injury he suffered against Juventus, or he just isn't that great in this formation. He certainly does not have the athleticism that Walker had. Um, very few right backs do, to be fair. Um, but uh, that's that's our current struggle, and and we saw it a lot in the match today against Burnley where Erickson was looking to play Trippier through, and Trippier's just not as quick as Kyle Walker is. And if he is struggling with injury, um, it would explain why he had, Trippier had such a poor match and that he was never really committing to getting forward. And my, my thought was maybe he knows that he can't get back in time either. So instead of just defending or just attacking, he was kind of doing neither uh, and just kind of hugging within 20 yards of, of uh, center of the pitch. So... We we do need to address that. We do need to get Danny Rose back with all of those issues that he stirred up this summer. Um, but I do think we will stick with it. I think your point about Crystal Palace was was very well made. I think pace is really what undoes it. And I think we could see a bit of a Leicester resurgence, especially if they're able to hold on to Mars, which isn't super likely. But if they do, that's the kind of team that could really undo this because you're committed forward so much of the time. Um that if you had their their situation where they used to just lob it forward to Mares and uh, to Vardy, even if there are three defenders, they can get pulled around in such a way that there's multiple lines, you can still play a ball through, uh, and that would be very concerning. And I think that's one of the reasons Liverpool have looked so good, and I think it's one of the reasons why Tottenham have not, is we do not have that just front-line pace. Son is our closest, uh, and he isn't in that category. He isn't, you know, he isn't a Mane uh, he isn't even, as you were talking about earlier, Zaha has that pace. Mars, who I just mentioned, has that pace. Obviously, Manchester City have about 98 players that are wingers with that pace. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that that is one of the reasons why we struggle to break that down. Um, not just because teams set up to defend, but because we don't have that pace to counter it. Um, I am interested to see... I've been kind of working with this theory in my head that maybe if you focused your attack through the middle it would largely work because it eliminates the necessity for having the width that three slash five at the back operates because then you just have extra players in the same space, which in theory can be good because you can just block off a whole bunch of lanes, but you're basically negating two of the players in that formation anyway. And if you're kind of bypassing the midfield, as you said, if they don't have two strong Midfielders, now you're kind of wasting at least two or three positions on the pitch. 
and that's not very effective. And I think it may just be a, a period of time, as it always is in the sport, before people figure out the ways to do that. So yeah, I, a pace is as was already mentioned. I think is a really interesting one. But maybe also if, like maybe like a, a four four two diamond kind of deal, because while you'd be exposing yourself down the wings, if you had if you had fullbacks that were willing to stay back in a four four two diamond then they're just waiting for those extra players to be running at them. They won't really be caught off guard by that or exposed. And now you just have this unnecessary width from the defensive team for a very narrow focal point. Anyway, just an idea I was playing with in my head, uh, and we'll see if anybody does that. Although, ever since uh, Rodgers has left, we really haven't seen much 4-4-2 diamond in the Premier League. All right, and we are back. Uh, Richard, we're going to lead in with a, a question for you about Manchester City. Last season... We saw David Silva playing a little bit further back, kind of more of a deep-lying playmaker at times, especially after Gundogan, who we've already mentioned, uh, was out for the year. This year, uh, a lot of neutrals and also fantasy football fans have been frustrated that it seems like Kevin De Bruyne is now playing in that deeper role, with David Silva playing a bit more advanced. What do you think the reasoning is behind that, and will it continue? Um, I think... That is something, like everything that we do, uh, I think that's probably something that's open to alternating um, between them. Um, I think, I mean, we've had several different players play quite deep. I mean, the, the last couple of games of last season, when uh, Guardiola was clearly trying to get Aguero and Jesus to play together, uh, particularly Watford away and West Brom at home were our last two games. Aguero got incredibly deep in those two games. So I don't even think it's something that's exclusive to the um, the sort of playmaker type players. Um, the reason, I guess that the reason for dropping De Bruyne deeper than Silva uh, so far this season, I would probably say De Bruyne's range of passing is probably... Slightly better than Silver's. Oh, so he's probably he's probably better at the the quick long ball. So if you're trying to play a quick attack, um, if you, if you know if you've won the ball back or you're you're on a counter and you're trying to play a, a quick attack from deep, um, maybe De Bruyne is slightly quicker at that. And that is obviously in in no way a criticism of David Silver because he's an outstanding player and his his range of passing is uh, is ridiculous anyway in his vision as we saw with the the setup for Jesus's goal at Bournemouth. Um, but it's I don't know maybe just a, a different skill set and a different range of passing. And De Bruyne probably lets the ball go a little bit quicker than Silver does if he's carrying it forward. Uh, so maybe. That's probably the reason. If you have Silver ahead of him, it gives him the option to release it to Silver, who can then look for his intricate passes, uh, or he can. He's been playing quite, a, spreading the play quite well, De Bruyne, um, spreading it out to when the wing backs have pushed up ahead of him, uh, to whether it's been Danilo, Walker, Mendy. Uh, I think he's been doing quite a good job of that. So, I, I guess that's probably the reason. Although guessing the reason for why Guardiola does. <laughs> Anything isn't always the easiest thing to do because um, he's, you know, a very sort of intricate thought that he puts into every game. But on the face of it, I would suggest De Bruyne probably has a uh, slightly rangier, quicker passing. Mm. That, that helps. The the other uh, thing that I've noticed is not only is Sané not starting, but he isn't looking nearly as sharp as he did at the end of last season. Is there any inside Manchester City reason for that or, or are you guys equally as confused? I think the reason he's not starting is probably just because we've tried with the, the wing backs um, you know Brighton we started with the wing backs and Sane came on I think it was about 70 minutes uh, and yeah you're right, he wasn't anywhere near sort of as, as dynamic as we saw last season uh, he did start the Everton home game and was he was really poor, um, but the problem there is he was playing as a left wing backer, and that it isn't his position. I think he's got a lot of skills that suit that the, in terms of being able to to get the ball upfield quickly. His positional sense when he's attacking is really really good. He's a he's a very intelligent player uh, and reads the game very well. But he's not a defender, so that defensive side of the game he is going to lack. And so I actually felt a bit sorry for him because. It was really, really a case of putting a square peg in a round hole, which 
I think it was a, an uncharacteristic misjudgment from Guardiola for a, a bit of positional play. But then I assume the reason for that was because he was probably a bit frustrated at how many attacks slowed down with Danilo on the left in the game previous and Mendy was still injured. So um, I think that explains why he's not looked fantastic so far, Sané, because he's either come on too late in the game to really make a, a difference or to play his way into it. And the, the one game that he did start, he was played out of position and hung out to dry a little bit, to be perfectly honest. People were, uh, you know, in the ground getting very, very frustrated with him. And I felt a bit sorry for him because it was largely not his fault. He had a, It's OK to say he had a bad game, but there's a, a huge context to that as to why he had a bad game. Basically, he was out of position. Um, they're a bit of a fish out of water. Um, but he's an insanely talented footballer, isn't he? So I'm... I don't think it'll be too long before he's back on form. Um, and Guardiola's probably learned that it's going to be a while or a lot of training that needs to be done with him before we can experiment with him at left wing back again. Yeah. Um, all right, on to you now, Jake. There has been a lot of speculation this summer about the fact that at some point Rafa Benitez could just walk. Is that more media pressure? Do you feel that internally as a... Newcastle supporter and what would your backup be if something like that did happen? Um, yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. I I think it's not as bad as the media are making it out to be. I don't think he's on the brink of walking. I think he's very he, he loves it in Newcastle. He wants to say he wants to fight, he wants to try and push Newcastle to be as good as they can be. Like the guy I saw on Saturday was not a guy that was gonna walk out anytime soon. But he's also an ambitious manager. He doesn't want to be fighting relegation fights. He wants to be striving for something. And as long as there was that he gets enough backing and he gets enough authority and enough he gets the support to try and push Newcastle on, I think he'll stay. I think he, he needs to be the the problem with Newcastle isn't a lack of funds. It's sort of a blurred power lines. It's the power relationships it sort of in the boardroom and down to Benita are a bit blurred. And it's a lot of just just when things are get when he puts things in place, he put a, he put deals in place for Tammy Abraham and Willie Caballero. Whatever your thoughts are on those two as players, he wanted those two players and he put deals in place for them to come to Newcastle and we probably should have got both of them. Um we we, we could have done that way before they went to respective clubs, but because we were so just doing not we were just so slow and just really unreactive to try and get those deals done, that's why they didn't get done. And I think it's just We've always been like that as a club. It's we we have Mike Ashley says he has nothing to do with the club, but he, he has a somebody uh, who's represent somebody from his PR company. I think is he comes in and just watches over everybody, is watches over what's going on, and he's the sort of one who comes in and just questions every single little financial detail, and that's why things are so slow to happen, and that's what's bothering Benitez. It's not the lack of finances. He he completely knows the, the situation there. He, he He's not coming in blind to, to the way Mike Ashley runs things, but he, he thinks he can build Newcastle within those parameters, and I'm sure he could. He's made a lot of good signings already um, for, for not much money, and I, I think he could continue to do that. that. It's not the lack of money. It's not like he expected 100 million. That's not really what's going on. It's just like the... It's just, I think he doesn't believe the board have the same ambition as he does to grow and and that's the problem. And and he thinks that people the 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 club are on purpose trying to stop him doing it. And that's where the problem lies. I think if if he over the next few days, if if we get a few players in, and and obviously a win at the weekend always helps. I think we can move in the right direction. Benitez is prepared to to sit down and and talk to talk and clear the air again. He's I, it's a lack of a communication as well. I don't think he's spoken to Mike Ashley for the last few weeks when he'd given this interview Benitez has been talking in the press that's the perfect time to speak to your owner and just set what's going on and just move on it's just not happened it's just some sort of cold war in the press and it's just not helping anybody all the supporters are nervy it's it's not great it's not as bad as people making out I think he's he wants to stay he, he loves it in Newcastle he wouldn't want to walk away from the players or his staff or all the fans he knows he's not going to get that sort of gratitude elsewhere just there to see owners if and, and the West Ham link has come up and f- I've read some recently from somebody who works at Sky a Newcastle fan Pete Gray he's, he's, he's 
got a bit of criticism when he reported the news that West Ham were thinking about Benitez as a potential replacement for Bilic, but he's just come out and, and written a long post about it on social media. And he says um, the one reason he'd be worried about West Ham, and it, it is because Benitez owes West Ham at the border of West Ham because he was going to become manager there, but they let him walk out of that contract or at least a pre-arranged contract to go manage Real Madrid. And he feels in debt to, to the board at West Ham. And he'd always sort of be open to talking to them because of that. And now I've read that, I'm slightly concerned about West Ham. But now I, th- I think as long as Mike Ashley gives him what he wants, which he absolutely should, because where are we going to go if Benitez leaves? We, The reason we are back in the Premier League, the reason we won at the weekend was because of Benitez. And, and the, the most sort of eye-catching image of the weekend was the Gallagate. It's just like the Gallagate flags group had one flag out at the weekend. There was this one of Rafa Benitez's face. Like the fans are completely behind him. Just give him what he wants. If we do, if we don't keep him, we are going to go one direction. And I, I'm afraid that is back to Alan Pardew. I couldn't see any other manager taking it. Oh, we, no. it's, we have to keep Rafa. I'm sh- I, it's not as bad as the, the, the media are making out, but also it's not great either. It, it can't be great. It, the amount of stuff that has come out, Rafa said uh, in his most recent press conference, he was talking about how he doesn't see, he's not looking at Newcastle as a long-term project. And whereas before, he'd always talked about it as one. And it's just, I think it's just a warning. It's At the moment, it's a warning, but it could quickly become something else. The next few days are crucial, I think. If we move a few players on, get three or four players in, and I, from what I've read, there is... There, uh, People who the people I trust when it comes to Newcastle think that there's going to be some interesting deals on the table for Newcastle, whether we can do them or not. It's completely up to the board. It they might not be big money deals. They might be loan deals or sort of like uh, low fee ones, like the Hosselu one. But there's going to be movement, and the next few days are going to tell us a lot about what, what the future holds for Newcastle and Benitez. Yeah, the uh, interesting player note uh, is that. You're, I thought, a brilliant defensive signing. The last time you were up in the Premier League, Chancel Mbemba ended up not looking that great back then. He's found his way back into your 11, and to my eye, has looked pretty good thus far. How important that is to you, and do you think he'll continue to develop in your first team? No, I don't think he's going to be a starter for too much longer. I think he's he's playing a makeshift left back at the moment. But the one thing I would say about Mbemba is he's he's got his head down. He's not in the team, but he, he works hard. And if you watch his performance at left back, he, I think it's the first time he played there for Newcastle against Huddersfield. And you compare it to the one at West Ham, you could just tell the, the impact Rafa has on his players. That it was, they were chalk and cheese the, against Huddersfield. The problem was we'll get offering no support down that left wing. So whenever Richie had the ball, no one was making that run beyond him just to pull the fullback away. He didn't have to do anything with the ball. He just had to pull that fullback away or, or pull the midfielder away and leave Richie on a one-on-one. And that, a lot of the time, that's what fullbacks do, especially ones that don't have the greatest on-ball skills. And, and Ben wasn't doing that. He was staying back. He was just part, he was staying on the, on the uh, halfway line. But yesterday he was going on, he was going beyond. He was a little bit more adventurous. He was a lot... He knew his role a lot better, and you could just see that's the impact Rafa has, and it, it was most—it's just most obvious within Bemba because it was a position he never played before, and yet he improved so much over a week on the training ground. It's—I mm. think yesterday our team, uh, the average age was around 25. We, we got quite a young squad, and if they all can—and and Rafa loves working with young players. That's another reason why West Ham might not appeal to him. He likes working with young players, people he can mould, and you could see the impact he's had at Newcastle. Kieran Clark is now a good Premier League defender. Uh, he's, he's probably going to have to play a few more games to prove that to other people who don't watch Newcastle so much. But from what I've seen from him over the last year, he is a very good defender now. He doesn't have the errors he had at Villa. He's learned his role a lot better. Um, other players, Isaac Hayden, we got him from Arsenal last year for, I think, 500,000. And yesterday he ran the show in midfield. It's just... just we- that's why we need to keep Benitez. It doesn't matter about big money signings. He's just going to improve what we have. And that's the problem what we had last time we were in the Premier League. We'd buy sort of good players or sort of people with good reputations uh, in Europe. And then they'd come and work on Depay and they just wouldn't get any better. Sometimes they'd get worse. And it was just poor coaching, which resulted to us going down last time. Not a lack of players. This time, we don't have play- sort of household names or sort of so much talent. But we have the coaching and, and it's worth so much more. And you could see that Mbemba's a great example. He, he was excellent yesterday and in a position he hasn't really played in his career. And that's just completely down to Benitez. It keeps coming back to him because he is the best thing about Newcastle. If we lost him, we'd have very little to be excited about. <laughs> you I wanted think. to say nothing. 
Yeah, <laughs> we will we have very close to nothing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but I just got a question to to ask you about that. The Champions League draw obviously was on there uh, during the week. I guess Richard could come in and, and talk about City's group as well. But what were your sort of feelings about Spurs' group? Because it did seem the toughest of the four English teams. Yeah, it certainly does seem that way. Although I think Chelsea's may be tougher than people are giving it credit for. Atleti and Roma are not exactly what you would hope for in a draw. Um, <clears throat> especially as the, the <laughs> I almost said one seed, talking about American sports. Um, but um, yeah, it's, it's obviously a very tough draw. Uh, and uh, the thing that I said as soon as that happened was, uh, if you look at Trippier and Davis and think they're going to do well against Ronaldo, Bale, Royce, and Aubameyang, you know, maybe that's what presses us to sign Aurier and, and keep Danny Rose, because that's all terrifying, especially as we continue to deal with Wembley issues, whether or not it's the stadium's fault. We certainly have not been successful there as of yet. Um, it's a very tough draw, and I'm not really expecting to go through Although there are two positives. First of all, kind of the main point of playing in the Champions League is that you learn more from playing against players that are better than you. You learn ways to cope with them and you learn ways to get around them if, if you're more on the attacking side. The second is that this is not the end of our season by any stretch. If we advance, which is possible by the way, all we have to do is pick up an unexpected win and draw. If we win against Dortmund at Wembley, which I think is the most important fixture, unfortunately also the first one, um, if we win against them, then all we need to do is get an unexpected draw somewhere, whether it be from Madrid or Dortmund in the other leg, and then obviously beat Apoel twice. And then all of a sudden you're on 10 points, which should, in theory, be enough to take you through, which is not impossible. But if we do crash out in this stage, um, then it is back to focusing on the league which could be crucial because when we first got the schedule, the fixture list at the start of the season, I realized something very, very frustrating, which is our hardest months in the league with the hardest Premier League fixtures are October and February, which both fall within Champions League stretches. So, for example, <laughs> we will be playing uh, Liverpool, Real Madrid, Manchester United, Real Madrid. That is not particularly fun. If we did it in February, we would have a similar horrible run with Arsenal, United, and Liverpool. So if we crash out of the Champions League, will it be frustrating for a second straight year? Yes. Would we have a better excuse than last year? Certainly. Uh, with Real Madrid and Borussia Dortmund in the group. Although Dortmund did lose Osmana Dembele this week, but they also gained over 100 million euro that they can now go and spend. Although not much time left in the window, obviously. But um, yeah, it was obviously a frustrating draw when it happens. You get very frustrated, especially seeing the groups that, say, Manchester United and Liverpool uh, got. But, <laughs> oh, oh, one last thing. People have heard me rant about this on the show before, so I'm not going to go too deep into it. But if I see one more person say you have to beat the best to be the best while discussing tournament play, I will lose it. That is literally not the function of that tournament style. You I'm do so not glad you said that. I'm so glad you've said it. It frustrates me every year. <laughs> It yeah. really my head in. It's just not it's how not, it works. If you get no, an easy group draw, and then you get a decent to easy round of sixteen draw, you're in the quarter. You're in the quarterfinals already. This year, this year any team finishing top of the group could legitimately play PSG, City, um, you know, whoever else. There's, there's a lot of good teams that yeah. could legitimately finish second in their groups because yeah. there are some very very tough groups. So it is, it's about the look of the draw. This is why, uh, and sorry, not to just like, you know, steamroll yeah, no, or over your, it. but this is why it frustrates me when Champions League success is used as the barometer of, of how well you're doing. Like, yes, it's a great competition to win. And if, if City ever win it, and, you know, they probably will one day, if I ever see City win it, I will be absolutely ecstatic to call them Champions of Europe and to witness that. But it won't be my ultimate barometer of a successful season because average-ish uh, average teams can win it. The Chelsea and Liverpool teams that won it in 2005 and 2012 were not great teams. They were fifth and sixth place teams in their country at the time. You can win it without being great. You can win it by being in tune with how to play in Europe but not be a great team. It's, um, it's a weird barometer. So the year we got to the semi-final, we were, we were dreadful all season. Uh, but yet, that sort of held up as 
well, I mean, it is obviously our best Champions League performance, but other years we've gone out twice through playing Barcelona in the last 16. So we got to the semi-finals by playing Dynamo Kiev in the last 16 and a very poor PSG side as they were at the time in the last eight. So it's a, it's a very strange barometer to, to use, I think. It's why league football will always, always take precedence to me. Yeah, that's fair. What did you uh, feel about City's group when it was drawn? Uh, the sort of a, a bit of a similar thing to what you've just said, really, apart from obviously our group isn't as hard, but the one of uh, my uh, friends on the, the the Blue Moon podcast uh, made the point that people often look at your biggest game in the group as being against the top seed. And for us, that is absolutely not the case this year because the top seed uh, is... Uh, yeah, the, the, the well, the... One. Or, yeah. I'm saying Napoli is the match that is going to be the decider. Yeah, absolutely. The top seed Shakhtar Donetsk, but I don't think anybody would uh, see them as the bigger threat than Napoli. So absolutely, our biggest threat is actually the, the team from the third pot, um, which is an interesting dynamic. If you beat the team that are your biggest threat for second, then you get through the group and then you hope you can do it in first. But actually, your biggest game is against the second biggest threat. Um, I've worded that badly, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um and so, yeah, the, the Napoli games will be will be pretty huge. Uh, Napoli were actually our first Champions League game ever as well, uh, seven years ago. Uh, and we we drew at home to them and uh, lost away to them, So, uh, which, as good as, put us out of the group. So uh, we, we owe them a bit of revenge from seven years ago. But they bring a great following with them and it'll be one of our few chances of a decent atmosphere at home on the Champions League night because we don't typically get that. Um, so, yeah, I think I would expect us to get out of the group. I know it's not a huge analysis of the other teams there, but we, I think, should be stronger than uh, Feyenoord and Donetsk. But Napoli play some very, very good football. They're exceptional at getting the ball out of the back um, and holding on to it. And so that stylistically could be very, very interesting uh, to, to see how Pep deals with that. Yeah. All right, uh, we are quickly running out of time, but I do want to touch on uh, what is <laughs> loosely going to be player watch uh, before we get out of here. Obviously, no matches to review as we're heading into the international break. Uh, but what positions do you think uh, your teams will address before the end of deadline day and any players that you think might be heading uh, out of the club uh, by September 1st? Okay, uh, yeah, I think we're City are going to go for a centre defender, um, and I fully expect it to be... Uh, Johnny Evans, I think he will come in. Um, I think we'll just pay the money that West Brom want, basically. Uh, and that will address uh, not so much a problem position, but if we to go right back to the start, if we want to play that three at the back properly, we do need another option there. So I think that will be Johnny Evans. Uh, the interesting one, I think, really will be to see how hard we go after Alexis Sanchez. We've known since well before the summer that he was a main target, and yet there's conflicting reports on whether we've actually made a bid or not. Uh, but if we have, it's certainly not been anywhere close to anything that will get him out of Arsenal. Uh, I'm obviously not party or to high-level transfer negotiations, but sometimes the way City do, seem to do business baffles me a little bit. Um, because I get that you start with your lowest offer and all that stuff. But the only bid that I've heard mention of is that we might have tabled a £45 million bid a couple of weeks ago, which is never close to being enough. So you're basically wasting your time at that point. Um, it frustrates me that a player that we've known for months that we want uh, is dragging into the last week. We either could have tabled a bid earlier in the summer and had um, either the conclusion that no we're not getting him this year we can either wait till next year or we can move on to another target or we could have had him in um it's 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 frustrating but then like i say i'm sure there's a lot more to it <clears throat> a lot more to it than that it can't be that simple but i think we will make a, a big bid for sanchez and i do hope we get him um and in terms of going out i think take your pick uh, we've still got plenty of players that we need to move on um jason denier i hope we let go on a permanent deal but i fear we will cast him out on loan for another season and hold his career back, which we seem to enjoy doing to young players. Um, Wilfred Bonney, why we are quibbling over £3 million with Swansea, I don't know. It's incidental. If they want to pay £10 million for him and we want 13 then why? Well, it's just not worth arguing about. We want the player out. It just makes sense. Move him on. Let them have him. £10 million is a good price for a player that's been a massive failure at City. Um, Mangala has to go somewhere. 
Um, God knows what kind of fee we'll get for him. We've already let Nasri go on a deal that is free up front um, and, and with the only fees will get are built into clauses. So we're not good at selling players. So God knows how many of these will be loan deals and how many of them will be um, sales where we don't bring anything like a reasonable price in. Uh, I don't know. But I, I suspect there'll be a lot more exits than there will be incomings in the last few days of the window. Yeah, I think I think we're going to see quite a lot of movement at Newcastle, both in and out, or at least that's what I'm hoping. Um, Sim Diong is is going to go to Ajax. I think he's going to go back there. Uh, I think four million reported, and, and Emmanuel Rivière left a, a couple of days ago. And they might not seem like huge sales based on the, the money we'll be getting in, but that's like around hundred ten thousand off the wage bill, and that gives us so much room to manoeuvre for other players. I think it's been the wage bill that's held us back with some players because, of course, the wage demand is going to go up with all, all the increased fees and money and stuff. And our wage bill couldn't really cater for that because we had so many players that weren't involved in the first team just hoovering up the wages. So those two are going to go. I think Tim Krull could, is, is, op, is, is available and hopefully he'll go somewhere whether that be loan or, or permanent, hopefully a permanent game off the wage bill. Jack Colback, uh, Grant Hanley, Ashraf Lazar. <laughs> there is a lot of players that could go. They're, they're all likely to go if a bid comes in, possibly to championship clubs. Uh, I even I even read today that Dwight Gale is available. He, he could possibly go as well, which wouldn't... I think he'd only go if we got a good offer from a, a championship club, which is possible. Uh, Leeds are looking for a striker. We could possibly sell him there. And then with the caveat of we would have to sign, we would have to upgrade him. If we're going to sell Dwight Gale, we're going to have to get somebody better. So it would that wouldn't be a straightforward. So I don't expect him to go, but there's a possibility and you, and you never know how things these things are going to go. I think the, the problem we have with Gale is that he's never fully confident that he's fit. He always feels things in his hamstrings. He's never, he's one of those players that he's, he's been injured so many times that it's in his head and he can't, he never, he can never properly commit to a uh, sprint. And I think, Benitez knows that's not really what we need. We can't afford to carry a player like that. So if, if the opportunity came to, to upgrade him, we'd want to do, do that. I think other. I think we're going to see quite a lot of players, or at least quite a lot of players we're going to try to get in. Uh, I think we're going to try for a left-back. I think Paul Dummett's out till November. I've heard, uh, I've been reading quite a lot about a, a Nicolas Tagliafico, I think his name is. He's from, Arge he plays in Argentina, Independiente. Uh, Independiente. He plays there. Uh, I've never seen him play, but apparently people who watch Argentine football say he's very good and would be an absolute bargain. So that's the type, if, if that is true. I mean, it's, I, I can't commit to that myself, but that's the type of player we're going to need to sign and hope it turns out to be a success if we're going to compete in the Premier League. We need to find these players on the cheap and then turn them into something better. So that would be, it makes a lot of sense based on what we're probably going to do. So we'll see if that one happens. There's Dennis Prate, I think it's Dennis Prate, there's a Sampdoria midfielder, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but he's been linked quite a lot. Yeah, as a central midfielder, possibly. I think we really need a number 10. That's the position really we need to strengthen. I don't know how he did yeah. last year. But... Yeah, yeah, he only got, I think he got, uh, I didn't see him I didn't see him at all for Sampdoria. I saw him at Anderlecht a few times, but he's, yeah, he got one goal and one assist, which doesn't seem that great. But again, I don't really know how he was used, so I'm not going to hold that against him. He would be a big name signing for us or at least a big money purchase for us so that would be interesting like Remy was linked Jerome Zote the, the uh, Dutch keeper was linked today I think we're just going to see a lot of players linked to Newcastle because agents know Newcastle are looking for players and we're going to get offered loads and we're just going to see what, what turns up <laughs> basically I'm interested to see what we sign in the end uh, Kennedy I think is the one deal I could talk to about that I know is, is very much in the works is Kennedy on loan at, from Chelsea the problem with that has been Chelsea need to sign players before letting him go. There's a deal in place. He, he's, it's all confirmed. It's just they need to sign players. So if Chelsea sign a few players, he'll probably come in. But he's I, I don't know how, where we'd use him as, as a left back or a left winger. It'd be interesting. But I think we're just going to see loads of players. Think. Hopefully, I'd like us to sign at least a left back, another striker and a number 10. Mm. And possibly play another winger we don't need a lot <laughs> and a goalkeeper yeah we need loads <laughs> we definitely need a new goalkeeper actually our goalkeeping options are very very not great so we need to get another one of them Apparently so yeah Palliser sniffing uh, around Vorm I think that would be interesting since we brought in I, yeah, I would really like Vorm but then I've seen we just got linked to Hennessy and I don't even think that would be an upgrade on what we got <laughs> yeah that would be a strange one but yeah I'd, I'd say at least a goalkeeper a left back an attacking player, number ten, winger, and a striker. Not asking for a lot. We probably won't get that. If 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 we manage to get 
two or three in, I think that would please Benitez enough to sort of make him quite happy. Yeah, Tottenham the same uh, Mauricio Machatino. Mauricio Machatino saying uh, we will sign three more this window. Uh, if I had to guess position, right back, probably Aurier. Um, <clears throat> then the Barkley thing, actually, we're running really late in the show. I don't have time to get into my full Barkley thing. But basically, the short version is he's not going to be fit till late October, early November. There's only going to be two Champions League matches after that. Why would we not just try to sign him on a free in January? I don't understand why everybody thinks Levy would pay 20 to 25 million right now for a player that won't play till the second half of the season anyway. And if we're out of the Champions League by then, just signing him on a free and then getting him the following summer seems to be a much wiser financial move. And I honestly think Daniel Levy sees the world in ones and O's. So not sure it'll be Barkley, but I think we need a winger slash forward. I think that's where the Martial thing came from. I think he would be literally the perfect signing. Very much doubt that's going to happen. So then you look at other players that kind of fit that profile, and that's probably where we'll be looking. Uh, and then also a central midfielder that can play at multiple levels, whether it be in, in a 2, in a four-two-three-one, or also able to take a step up and play more creatively if need be. I think that's why Barkley makes sense. I'm just not sure it's going to happen this window for the aforementioned reasons. Uh, players going out, Vimmer signed a deal with Stoke today. I don't know why. The other clubs interested were West Brom and Crystal Palace, both of which I think he walks into their defenses. For some reason, goes to Stoke, who have already re-signed Bruno Martinsendi. They've loaned in uh, Kurt Zuma. They already have Shawcross, who I've never particularly thought was great, but Stoke fans seem to think he is, and he's been there a long time. Doubt he'd be dropped. Um, not really sure I get that one, to be honest. Uh, a lot of people sniffing around in Kudu for a loan. Sounds like we're going to keep him. Uh, we've already let out Josh Onama and CCV. We can talk about Poch's loan policy at a later date. Um, Sissoko is is the big shoe to drop. If Sissoko goes, we definitely sign a winger. Uh, if he doesn't, whether we do or not, I'm not so sure. But that uh, that's probably going to be the Tottenham motion uh, before the end of the window, and that will do it for us today. So if you guys would like to tell folks where they could reach you or any projects you're working on, now be a good time. Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Richard the Burns, uh, and the Blue Moon podcast is released every Friday. Uh, specialist uh, or dedicated Manchester City podcast that is on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast um, and I write two articles a week about City for Yahoo Sport UK which I always um, I always push via my Twitter feed yeah, you can get my Twitter at Jake Jackman with two N's. I write for EPL Index and The Boot Room and various other sites all of which I would plug on my Twitter and I'm also involved in help uh, in sort of producing the championship roundtable which i would recommend listening to it's on this channel and there's a lot of great guests and you get to hear about some cool clubs that are not in the premier league which is always a bonus yeah and i'm your host kevin devries at Kevroff on twitter definitely do check out that championship show on this channel we obviously have this show you're already listening to it you nailed it uh and the fpl show so if you're interested in fantasy check that out i also write for goal.com uh, so be sure to check that out as well. If you're into the fantasy stuff, we also do DFS videos for VIPbet.com and podcasts for fan tracks. So yeah, thank you guys so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure as always, and we hope you keep listening.